0: You know, for only having partial strength today, the singing has been amazing. Those new songs selected, well done. Getting ready for First um, Samuel chapter, or not First Samuel, uh, Isaiah chapter 6 here in a couple weeks, and that song's going to have to be sung. That's where the seraphim, which the only time the seraphim ever appear, is Isaiah chapter 6. These weird creatures, we have no idea even really what they are, fiery ones, and all they do is... Is gather around the throne and sing to each other, holy, 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 and, and that's what we're going to be talking about uh, tonight. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 6, you'll make your way there, it was read just a moment ago, this weird story, and it will get weirder as, as it goes along, but it's, it's a great question, and it's not just a great question for people who don't know God, it's a great question for God's own people, because it turns out they don't have God any more solved than strangers do. They find themselves baffled by something God does here, and they're, they're frightened, and they just kind of freeze. The chapter ends very anticlimactically, but we use the word holy to describe God. He is holy. His Word is holy. His Word is inspired by His Holy Spirit, and by submitting to that Word, we become holy And holy is a perfect word for God. It's a word um, that he chose for himself. And I I don't even really know what this word means other than it's kind of like godness. It's kind of who God is as opposed to anybody else. He is the only one who doesn't depend on anything else for his existence. And so he is just altogether different than anything else that is or that we know of. It's how we, he says, I want you to be holy as I am holy. So he says, I want you, our only opportunity uh, to be holy is we become like him. And the closer we become to him, the more holy we become. But we'll never become quite holy, holy, holy as God is. We might make one holy, but we'll never be holy, holy, holy like God is. And that's how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the world. We're supposed to be altogether different than the rest of the common things that you see in the world. That's our mission. That's who we're called to be. And it's easy to know that but become casual with it. It's like familiarity breeds contempt. The more you're around the holy God, the more casual you'll become. We kind of saunter, you know, into worship and, and, and we do things and we take our cell phones and we text each other even while worship's going on and it doesn't feel very holy sometimes and that's what we're called to do as the seraphim do around the throne according to Isaiah's vision they sing to one another holy 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 letting God know the praise that he deserves and even the people of God have this experience on the mountain of God and in Exodus that we looked at not long ago when God comes down and terrifies the people with his holiness and they say we just really don't want to hear you anymore it's terrifying and then he goes away and they kind of forget about it The Ark of the Covenant has become a symbol of God's presence. It's so interesting that this story that we are in the middle of as we drop into 1 Samuel chapter 6 has God completely silent. He's not saying a word. He's teaching in action. He doesn't explain anything. He doesn't provide any instructions or explanation. He just is himself, and everyone around him is constantly learning uh, what it means to have God in their presence. For Israel... Serving a holy God means giving up any idea of manipulation. The people thought they could do whatever they wanted and have God's endorsement as long as they had the Ark of the Covenant with them. It's like it it gives approval to whatever they're doing. Whatever you're doing, just throw a little God in there and it endorses you. But you see, God does not endorse what you want. He wants you to want what He endorses. It's not—it's not bringing God in to approve what we do. It's learning what God wants and doing that. That's what holiness really is, and even God's holy people know that there's a standard that you have to honor if you want to keep Him in your midst. Ironically, being the people of God makes us more responsible for doing His will, not more comfortable. And that has to be something we keep in our minds. And that's what Israel learned because brings, they bring this Ark of the Covenant thinking now we'll win this battle. They lost the first and we'll win the next one because we got God with us. Obviously God's going to prove anything and we bring him along with our back pocket and he's our immunity idol and it gets taken. The Philistines on the other hand have a holy God in their midst and they line him up right next to their deity and think well he's just another one among many. We'll just throw him in with all the ones we already have. He's part of our starting lineup. We've got our leadoff man, Dagon, but we'll put God as number two in the lineup. And we think we can just throw God into with everything else. God doesn't doesn't do second fiddle very well. But in this chapter, he's a God. Their God is a God without hands. In this chapter, God speaks for himself with his hands. So they've had, they've had the Philistines, the Ark of God in their presence for seven months, and he's wreaked turmoil. Two things have happened. Well, Dagon messed up, right? He messed up Dagon, and they had to put their God back together and put him back up and standing there. But the other thing they have to do is they suffer tumors. We don't know what these tumors are, but they end up making gold models of these tumors. But all the people of the land got gold tumors. I won't even... I won't tell you what scholars think this is. I'm just gonna think about one of the most painful things you can have with you all the time, and that's what it is, a golden tumor. The other thing that happened is these, these mice started ravaging the land. Started tearing everything up and eating it stuff, and they messed up with their, their land. And made it, so, so there's two things happening to them. And after seven months of this, they finally figure it out. They're gonna cry uncle and say, we give up. This must be God ticked off that we have his ark. Now there's no instruction manual on the ark saying don't handle it roughly or if you do you'll suffer for it. They just have to learn from experience. And, And it's awful easy to attribute God's actions to something else, isn't it? It's awful easy to give credit or Responsibility of something in our lives to something else when actually it's God's working. So finally in chapter 5, they had figured out this, this ark needs to go. And they invited all their political leaders and the politicians just couldn't figure it out. So in chapter 6, they decide, let's get the religious leaders together. Maybe they know what to do. So they said, yes, we know what to do. We pre- we're pretty sure the God of this ark is mad about being away from home. He doesn't like going on camping trips like this. So let's send it back, but we can't send it back empty handed. We've gotta gotta do a guilt offering. Every group of people knew what a guilt offering was. It means I've made a mistake and I've gotta pay for it. But you know, there's no instruction manual there saying, okay, if you ever take the ark and you start experiencing, this is what you need to do. So what's a logical thing to put with the ark that would serve as a guilt offering? Hmm, they get together, how about this? Since we all had these tumors, let's create golden models of those tumors. That's a really good idea. But not only that, we've had these mice all around our country. Let's make, let's make these golden mice. Do I have a picture of a golden mouse? Yeah. I don't know if that's what it was. I'm not saying that's existing from those times. I'm just saying, you know, that could be more like ratatouille or something. But it, the idea is that we're going to make this as a, sacrifice as a guilt offering and we're gonna put it in with the ark and we're gonna send it back now there were some people that didn't like this idea they wanted to hold on to it and and he said and that's why the people said now don't don't harden your hearts don't don't get mad and say no we need to keep it we know what Egypt did when they hardened their hearts they kept it way too long they do their Egyptian history in verses 5 and verse 6 these Philistines know the history it's amazing they said when Pharaoh hardened his heart, he just did plague after plague after plague, and the land was decimated. We're not going to be that stubborn. We're going to send it back now, and we're not going to wait for another bunch of plagues. But do you remember when they left Egypt, what the people gave them as they left? Gold and silver. It's like, you know what? Since that worked for Egypt... Let's try that ourselves. Let's send some gold back and make it in the form of what we suffered that we think is of God. Now, it's interesting. Uh, It's interesting because it says that doing so, they gave glory to God. Isn't that a weird concept? So, So you must make images of your tumors, images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel? Making a golden tumor? Became glorifying to God? What in the world does that mean? Okay, so here's here's a lesson in some words. God is holy in Himself. He's always holy. But human beings don't see holiness. But sometimes God, out of His holiness, acts on the earth in a visible way. He makes His holiness obvious. And when human beings get the message and they look at something and they go, that's God working, that's glory. Holiness is invisible. Glory is God's holiness made visible. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, it says the whole earth is full of His glory. When you go to the Rocky Mountains and you stand before the Rocky Mountains and you feel so small and you look up there and you say, that could only have gotten there by... God, you that's God's glory. He's making himself known. He's so often quiet, incognito. He's so often hidden. But there are moments. There are moments in your life when you're standing on a beach looking at that wave come up and see that big ocean expanse and you feel so small and you go, that can only be God. That's when his glory is. So when they give credit to God for all this stuff, it's called God being glorified. So that... When you live in a way that people look at you and say, What makes you different? Oh, it's God. You are glorifying God. That's what you're doing. You're making God visible in your life. And that's your job to do this week. Every one of you. Let your light so shine before men, they may see your good works and glorify. That's what it is. You're making God's hidden holiness a little more visible to people who can't see it otherwise. So, when they started giving credit to God, even for the bad stuff of these mice and these tumors, right? These tumors, God's glorified because unbelievers see God and they know it's Him, and that's called the glory of Him. By doing this, they say, perhaps, and I love that word because I say it all the time, perhaps God will lighten his hand against your gods and you. Maybe. They start with a very humble position. We're not going to presume upon God and say, by doing this, it's a magical formula for getting him out of us, getting him out of our business, right? But they're saying, perhaps, we hope, our effort is, let's do this. They got these ideas, obviously, from Egypt. They're still not certain God's doing it, though. If you look at verse 9, it may be coincidence. I love this last verse. We'll set up this kind of test, and if it goes this way, we'll know it's God. But if it doesn't go this way, we'll know it's coincidence. So here's the setup. How are they going to get this ark back? They build a brand-new cart out of brand-new wood. They get two mama cows, milk cows, mama cows, just had some babies. Where does that mama cow want to be? With the babies, right? I mean, that's what you do. That's what a milk cow is there for. So you're taking, this seems cruel, but you're taking two mama cows away from their babies and you're, and you're, Yoking them together. They've never been yoked together. They've never hauled this kind of a wagon or load before. And so their their babies are back here calling out for mama. And here's two mama cows yoked together, hauling a brand new cart. None of this is natural. None of this makes any sense. Where these cows should go is straight in a circle back to their babies. That's where they should go. But they're saying, they're setting up a test for God. If these creatures go straight back to Israel with this, cart, and this ark, and these tumors, and these mice, we'll know it was God. That's a really good test. It's a logical one to me. So they get it all together, and they let it go. And sure enough, it says they were lowing all the way. I I think that means they're crying out for their babies, right? Moo, moo. Is a very moving experience as this thing goes down the hill, across the road, and it goes straight in the line. Doesn't go right, doesn't go left, doesn't budge, doesn't hesitate. It goes straight. These two cows go straight to Beth Shemesh, which is interesting. That's not where the home of the ark was. It doesn't tell us ever what happened to Shiloh. It just says, the ark never went back to Shiloh. I think it was destroyed by the Philistines. That's what Jeremiah made reference to. So it can't go back home to where it normally goes. It goes to its new home. And notice as we join at verse 10, "...the men did so and took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart, shut up their calves at home, and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart in a box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors." And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. They were into this going, is this really from God? And obviously it was. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat in the harvest, April, May, in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark and they were rejoicing. There they are, this is great. We got photographs. Photographs. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh, and it stopped there at a great stone. They split up the wood of the cart, offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. These are female cows. But this is a special occasion. This is not like a, an offering at the temple. This is just a rejoicing to God at the return of the ark. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of Philistine saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. They knew this was God. And so did the people of God. So the story's okay so far. It's a really fascinating test, isn't it? And we have these questions all the time. Is this God or is this something else? And we've got to use the best reason we can. I do believe God still works in our lives like this. He does things in our lives like this. Whether we give Him credit or not, whether we acknowledge His working in a lot, that's largely up to us. Do we give Him glory or not? Or do we sometimes take the things that are of God... Attribute it to something else and lose the glory of God for our lives. you say, well, what's it hurt? Every time you give the glory of God to something else, it hurts you. So now the ark is in Israelite territory. These are the golden tumors, it says, that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, for each of their major cities and for their, their rulers are there. Verse 19, he, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Well, you know, this is kind of anticlimactic. After that excitement and we sacrifice and God's at work here. And now all of a sudden he turns on his own people and strikes them dead if unbelievers treat God as unholy there's a consequence if we as God's people treat God as unholy there's a consequence we of all people know who our God is and to treat him casually when we know better can really be painful and he kills these 70 men and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? It's a great question. Who can be in the presence of this God? And to whom shall, we, shall he go up away from us? We don't want him either. Isn't that funny? The Philistines don't want him, and God's people don't want him either. Sometimes we don't want God in our lives. We're just like, get away from us. Isn't that what Peter said when he caught all those fish? And he realized who Jesus was, and he says, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The more holiness comes close to you, the more real your image becomes. And like Isaiah, who's a prophet of God, says, oh, woe is me, I'm a sinful man, and I dwell in uh, in a land full of sinful people. We might be a little better than the rest of the world, but when we're comparing ourselves to God, we're all pretty bad. We do not want God here. So they sent to some people in the town of Kiriath-Jerim saying, hey, the Philistines returned the ark. You guys come and get it. I love that, right? It takes its tour. It's going to keep moving until somebody's willing. To, in chapter 7, verse 1, the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated it on the hill. Yeah, it went to on the hill. It went right here. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charged the ark of the Lord. And from the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years more than that. 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They just didn't know. Even God's people still don't know, what do you do with a holy God? What do you do with a holy God? What can you do with a God who's so far above us will never really capture or, or, or understand him fully? What do you do? That's what this chapter is begging us to think. The Philistines can't contain him and God's people can't understand him either. What went wrong? For one thing, listen, you're not to treat the ark like this and the law makes it clear. You do not look into the ark. It stays in the Holy of Holies and you do not mess with the ark. They did not watch Indiana Jones, and if they would have, they would have not looked in the ark. But there's a second thing that's interesting. Years later, it says for 20 years, but it's there longer than that. I think maybe, maybe through the time of Samuel's, what they're thinking there, it's a lot longer. It's until David is king that moves up from this place. And do you remember what David did the first time he tried to move it? He puts it on a cart. And when somebody reaches up because it kind of hits a bump and moves a little bit, reaches up and touches it, what happens to that dude? Totally dead. And everybody's like, well, how can God do that? That's not how you transport the ark. If you know the law at all, you know that the way that thing is built, it's got rings in it. And Levites carry that thing. You don't put it on some cart. Where did David get the idea that you put it on a cart? He got it from the Philistines. That's how it got here. But we don't take our doctrine from people out there. And we've been doing it forever. We want a king like everybody else. We want to bow down to gods like everybody else. We do not get our doctrine from the world. We get it from the Word. That's where holiness is. Do you really believe it? Holiness comes from being people of the word, not letting the world determine for us how we're going to worship him, how we're going to approach him, what we're going to say to him, what we're going to believe about him. Our doctrine doesn't come from that. So here's the question. What are we to understand about holiness from this chapter? God is not to be treated like some good luck charm. You don't carry him to your ball game and bow down and say, God, help me win this game. You don't even carry him into war, helping him, asking him to approve your war. Both sides of the civil war were praying to the same God, the same thing. It seems to me the secret to the balance might be this. Our prayer and our petition to God should flow out of an entire life of devotion. If you never give God another thought... But when you're in a little trouble, you break him out of your back pocket and pray to him, and then you put him back in there for you. That's, li- that's using him as a good luck charm. It's using him like his rabbit's foot that's attached to your key ring. God doesn't function well that lot. He doesn't, tr- he doesn't respond well to that. Secondly, God is not to be treated as a deity who's willing to take whatever place in our lives that we're willing to give him telling you when you hear pop Christianity in our culture it's like give God whatever you whatever you want he'll be happy with that is not the God of scripture he's not going to take whatever you'll give him he's jealous he wants to be first he wants to be center and he won't accept just any treatment to have God in your knowledge God in your life it It takes some adjustments and it takes some study. He wants people to love him with all your mind. Not just any gift will do for your wife, will it? You run out to Walmart real quick and go get that crock pot and wrap it up and give it to her for your anniversary. I recommend you never do that, right? It takes some knowledge. What What do I know about her? What do I know about her interest? Your gift should be different than some stranger giving her one. And see, our God is a God who says, I want you to know me and I want you to study me and I want you to know what I like and I want you to love what I love and I want you to hate what I hate and I want you to be burdened by what I'm burdened by. That's what I want you to do. That's what it means. And so I think it's interesting. Maybe this is why... There's a lot of people who know God a lot, and you know God and you have a relationship with Him, but it's not until baptism that the Lordship comes. There's a lot of people that know about God and appreciate God, maybe even love Him a little bit. But if you won't call Him Lord, you don't need to respond yet. Until you decide that I'm willing to embrace him as Lord and he becomes the center of my life, that's when you can name him Lord in front of a group of people and be immersed and know that immersion saves. Until you're willing to call him Lord and really let him be Lord, you're not prepared to treat him as holy or be holy yourself. So belief is not enough. Only when you submit as Lord is that enough. And finally, God expects his people to know how to treat him. We should be experts on him. He sent us a revelation directly to us, and we have in our hands what we know about a holy God and a righteous God, what he wants from us. As I said, when David later on, he decides, I'm going to send for that ark and I'm going to bring it to where it needs to go. And at first somebody struck dead. David is angry at God and he stops the ark where it's at until he can figure out what in the world went wrong. Because here's the truth. If you have the revelation of God that he's made known to you, but you don't take the trouble of studying it, you're still responsible for knowing what you should know. Those people, while it is tragic that somebody died that day, they should have studied about their God. And they're going to be held responsible. Ignorance is no excuse under the law, nor is ignorance an excuse before a God who has revealed himself. Know as much about him as you can. And don't get your information about him from what the Philistines do. Don't get your information and ideas about what God wants from what the TV shows. Get your information about God from what he's made known of himself. He's given you this wonderful partial biography of himself and of you and that's why God is holy and his stuff is holy his word is holy his people is holy his spirit is holy and if we are to be holy we can only do so by going through those means he's serious about holiness we are the holy people of the holy God He's provided a specific revelation to understand what that means, and he expects us to honor that standard. If we get casual, if we get flippant with that standard, things are going to go bad, and you're gonna experience it, and you're gonna then say, I just don't want God in my life. He's too mysterious. Now, he's always gonna be somewhat mysterious, but sometimes the only reason he's mysterious is we haven't gone to the trouble of understanding his revelation. And that's why it all begins with the fear of the Lord. Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia was asking about Aslan. Aslan is the Christ image in that story. She's talking to the fawn and said, is he safe? And the fawn said to her, safe? No, God is not, or Aslan is not safe, but he is good. Remember this week, you serve an awesome, good God, but he is not safe. If you need to respond this evening, make it known as we stand as we sing.